0: Joining us today to talk in depth about the Bloomberg agenda is Michelle Minton, Senior Fellow with the Competitive Enterprise Institute in Washington, DC. Michelle, thanks so much for coming back on RegWatch.
1: Thanks for asking me to come
0: back on. It's great to see you. So Michelle, Bloomberg is in a bit of hot water over a growing scandal in the Philippines. And before we dive into that morass, who is Michael Bloomberg and what role does he play in the debate over vaping? Right,
1: so I mean, for those of you who had somehow missed who Michael Bloomberg is. You know, he's this one of the wealthiest men in the world, I think twelve or 14th wealthiest. He's multi-billionaire many times over. Uh, and sometime in the, I believe the 80s or the early 90s, he became interested in, in public health issues, in obesity, diabetes, and tobacco. These were really big concerns. And he started using his giant philanthropic mechanism, uh, Bloomberg Philanthropies, to funnel money into groups that would Uh, champion his causes in a bunch of different ways, and that has, you know, I'm sure we'll discuss it at length, that has really ballooned out into this industry in and of itself uh, with all of his various issues, including global warming and you know, soda and tobacco control. Uh, And he's at this point funding dozens, if not more, uh, organizations around the world, including some of the most well-known international health organizations, like the World Health Organization and America's CDC.
0: So uh, he's definitely absolutely 100% against low-risk products like vaping.
1: He's pretty much against anybody making their own choices when it comes to anything they put in their bodies, unfortunately. His uh, modus operandi or philosophy of public health seems to be, do what I say. Uh, There isn't a whole lot of logic to it or scientific basis. I mean, you can always find the specific studies with specific experts to justify a position, but he he and the groups that he funds anyway seem to come at it from we have made a pronouncement therefore you all must now follow this is the capital t truth of what was what would be good for you therefore you should do it because we say so
0: now he's not a scientist or anything like that is he
1: no he's a businessman he made his billions off of uh data terminals for trading stocks, uh, and I don't know how much time he actually puts into that, but obviously he has Bloomberg Media, uh, which is another huge property that makes a decent amount of money, but also serves to uh, act as a megaphone for a lot of the issues he cares about.
0: And he did try to run for president this last cycle.
1: Yeah, he he wasted a lot of money and a lot of people's time uh, jumping into the fray, but you know, a lot of people do that, or so they say, a lot of people enter into those, presidential races in order to direct the conversation where they want it to go. But I think for him, not only did it financially backfire, it it really brought to light some of his behavior when he was mayor and some questions. You know, it's been a little while since he's been mayor. And when he had his stop and frisk program, for example, which he wholeheartedly supported, there wasn't too much pushback. But now that, you know, the white middle class of America in particular is much more interested in issues of criminal justice and equity, that really came up. And he, he had to answer some tough questions.
0: Now, you had mentioned his uh, work with the WHO, his support of the World Health Organization. He spun a tangled web of organizations dedicated to eradicating eradicating vaping. What are those organizations and how much of his own money do we know that he's contributed?
1: Yeah, I mean, the the number of organizations at this point that he that he has given some amount of money to is too numerous to even go through, but some of the major players obviously are the World Health Organization, and they then turn around and give a lot of grants, especially in low and middle income countries. They fund a lot of the public health work there, not just giving them research, but also giving them grants and funding. Bloomberg also funds the union, which we're gonna talk about, uh, is based in Paris focused originally on tuberculosis and they are also focused on low and middle income countries. But he has smaller groups that are all pretty much associated funding the campaign for tobacco free kids, for example, in the US. And then that group then funds other groups like the American Cancer Society, American Heart Association, et cetera. Uh, I believe Bloomberg even gives money to the CDC Foundation, I'm pretty sure. Uh, he has managed to get Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation on board with his Bloomberg initiative. If you go to the World Health Organization website, there's a webpage about this. It is a World Health Organization initiative called the Bloomberg initiative. And that's funded primarily by Bloomberg and Gates. So, I mean, it's all over the world in a bunch of little groups that share money between each other, funnel money around. So it doesn't all come directly from Bloomberg philanthropy, philanthropy, excuse me. He also funds universities, he funds, you know, political campaigns through the universities, money then get money and and people will get funneled back into these groups and into government.
0: You know, you mentioned the union. What exactly is that? It sounds ominous.
1: Yeah, so I, I can never recall the complete name. It's extremely long. It's the International Union for Preventing Tuberculosis, functionally. And like I said, they were started. They actually, the predecessor organizations were were created during the colonialization period, they're going into low- and middle-income countries and trying to figure out how they could improve the health of these newly colonized peoples. And now they've brought in there, as, as most of these old health organizations do, they start to broaden their scope. Now they also focus on non-communicable issues that affect the lungs and uh, tobacco control, obviously, and respiratory diseases other than tuberculosis. And they put a lot of money uh, and energy into Really spreading specific messages and trying to influence public policy around the world, which we're seeing at the at the very moment, low and middle income countries are just starting to push back, starting to recognize what this is, and starting to push back on it.
0: Why is there so much effort on low to middle income countries?
1: You know, you could say a bunch of different things about why that is. For one thing, if you're talking about tobacco, it's where most of the world's smokers live. Eighty percent of the smokers. Currently, smoking the 1.1 billion smokers are in low and middle-income countries. So you know that's where the need is to, to put some money into it. The other thing is that a lot of these countries, their systems, you know, their structures are are still fairly new. They're developing. That's why we call them developing countries, developing nations. So it's easier to influence. It's easier to get a foot in the door. First of all, because uh, when you're setting up something like you know, a national public health organization. You have to get the manpower, the training, the expertise, the research. Then you have to promulgate rules. You know, inform public policy. It's a lot of work. A lot of these groups turn to WHO, but they will also welcome any other expertise and and financial support that they can find because a lot of developing nations are cash strapped. Unfortunately, that research, that uh, friendship, and the money often comes with uh, comes with an expectation that they will go along with whatever the, the funder or the super organization like WHO
0: wants them to do. So it seems to be that it's all about, and to use your words, you wrote this great article, Bloomberg's Philanthro-Colonialism, Threat to Global Health and Science, which was published in Inside Sources, I think last month in early February. You wrote in that article, using their money, clout, and connections, they impose their views and will on these nations without the input of local populations and with little or no regard for their specific circumstances needs and values what are the what how would you describe the character of these tactics
1: well so i mean i think people might imagine that it's uh, dark rooms well not smoky but smoky dark rooms where people are you know have wads of money and they're saying well have you passed this policy we'll give you this money and it usually from what i have seen and what i understand it's not like that it's more you have organizations in low- and middle-income countries or in, in modernized countries that don't exactly have a staked-out position on an issue. You know, a lot of them are still dealing with, communi- with serious communicable diseases, starvation, uh, infrastructure problems. They haven't exactly thought about what they, how do they feel about vaping, you know, when when hundreds of thousands of their residents are th- still dying from smoking. So in come these groups with clout, with, ex- with apparent expertise, and a significant amount of resources, and they say, here you go you don't have to think about it now and so a lot of people are inclined because first of all it feels good to go with what the what the big movement is there's a big movement to do this you know they're fighting uh the tobacco companies which have now have this new thing to hook a whole new generation it's a compelling narrative and it's it's easy to just fall in line especially when it comes with you know awards from the who and money from who and other groups
0: let's take a look now at the implementation Hub at the union, one-stop shop for a low or middle-income country to go to uh, to get
1: policy. Yeah, and the problem with that is that it completely bypasses the you know it, for countries like America who constantly talk about how how interested we are in the democratic process. But you have you know so it's not someone going in and enslaving a group of people. They're not they're not saying you don't get to vote, but the democratic process only works. If the people voting for the politicians truly have a voice, if they're heard by their politicians. And when you have a population of people who are, you know, you're in a low and middle income country, you have a population comprised of a lot of people who are un- underpowered, let's say, in the political process. They're already not being listened to as much as you they might want. And then you have groups from the outside coming with a lot of money and a lot of clout. And they completely silence the voices of of the voters in that country. So they're disenfranchising the people who actually live there from participating in the political process and the way it affects their lives.
0: Let's talk about some of the information that they're pushing in these countries. You say in this article that it's blatant lies. Fill us in on that.
1: Yeah, some of the times you'll you'll hear lawmakers repeating things. I mean, even the WHO put out you know uh, a question and answer. Uh, document on vaping that included things like you know the e-liquid can catch on fire, which is not true. Uh, popcorn lung myth that keeps circulating around and around. Uh, the idea that there's no evidence that e-cigarettes or heated tobacco products have any benefits for smokers in quitting, and they're not useful for cessation. The fact that kids who use e-cigarettes are you know they're all coming, they're all becoming smokers anyway. The idea that the vapor industry is just big tobacco in disguise. All of these things get spread and circulated. And this is on purpose. This is part of the, you know, these groups come in and they don't just talk to members of government or try and get them to enact legislation that they've written, that these anti-tobacco groups have written. They're also engaging with the media. They're putting on you know webinars and seminars and they're grabbing people from the universities and they're having people from the government come and they're getting attention from journalists. So all of these stories keep getting into the news and then the public are even less inclined than they were previously to get involved because they're saying, well, fine. Uh, What do I know about this? Whatever.
0: So is it fair to say that Bloomberg advocates propaganda tactics and strong arming governments?
1: It's very fair to say that. Yes. Uh, Strong arming I might even use harsher language than that because I think it's more insidious than strong arming. Strong arming at least, you know, when you have someone come in with a gun and say, do what I want, at least you have a chance to fight back. People can see clearly what's happening. What they're doing in these countries is insidious because it's subtle. Because they are working behind the scenes, you know, emails, here's a draft of something. We just saw this in Mexico where um, the health minister is in trouble potentially. uh, Some members of Government are in trouble because they introduced a ban, a prohibition on e-cigarettes. They're circulating the proposal right now. And in the metadata of the document, it became obvious that it was written by someone at the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids. So they'd done the work for them, given it to them, and then they'd, you know, in what some have alleged is a violation of the Mexican constitution. They are acting as agents for a foreign interest.
0: And that just happened in Mexico?
1: Yes, this, uh, over the last week.
0: That's amazing. Now, obviously, there has been something very similar going on in the Philippines. Um, Fill us in on what exactly happened there.
1: So you have the union and other Bloomberg funded groups have been operating in the Philippines for a long time. And they've been, you know, along with these groups that have become more interested in vaping, that's the policy they've been pushing. And over the years since at least 2010, 2012, somewhere around there, they've been pushing for a prohibition in the Philippines on, on vapor products, just as they have in India and Vietnam, and Mexico and a lot of other low and middle income countries. And it, some members of government, you know, there was a consultation, a public consultation with the Philippines FDA where they were talking about this proposal, how we regulate e-cigarettes. And a few member, uh, members of government who are, I would say, fairly friendly towards vapor products or at least not completely anti-vaping. They noticed during this public consultation that it was really one-sided, that the FDA wasn't taking questions from the public. And then they asked the question in the in the consultation, if they'd received money from Bloomberg funded organizations. At first the FDA denied it, but then the members of government presented a document that functionally proved it from, from the union. From the Bloomberg Initiative, showing that you know at least they were saying that they'd given the Philippines FDA money for tobacco control, and then the FDA was forced to admit it. Now there's an investigation currently underway in the Committee for Good Governance in the House, where they're investigating what was this money used for, what promises were made, uh, and they're starting to track it out now and seeing anti-vaping legislation seems to coincidentally coincide with anti uh, with grants from Bloomberg funded organizations and the Philippines a lot of countries are growing are, are becoming more nationalistic let's say and the Philippines is certainly one of them there they're they're actually traditionally pretty wary of outside influence and the influence of colonialism you know not a surprise thanks to their past and so they're they're talking about this as saying even if no laws were technically broken let's say you know no member of government pocketed the money personally do we want to have this influence and they, they've Said it out loud that this appears to you know, this is colonialism in a new form Or you have someone coming in with money uh, Instead of guns and you know and trying to make people work They're coming in and they're saying we're here to help you. But what they're actually doing is Unduly influencing the political process of another nation
0: Well, they're circumventing uh, a population from being informed about the issues and then making decisions Themselves on those very issues, and then informing their government what they are, and going through a process that happens inside a sovereign nation.
1: Yeah, and one of the things that's so insidious about this type of behavior from from foreign wealthy groups or or any other movement is that they are, you know, they are giving them a one size fits all policy that they, first of all, wouldn't even be beneficial in non low and middle income countries and wealthier countries. It wouldn't be helpful, but it's. Per- Particularly condescending in these countries because it doesn't account for their specific needs, their values, their interests, what they care about. You know, in the U.S., we talk about, oh, if you're going to ban flavors, there's just going to be a black, big black market. If you're talking about a country like India, people are already smoking. You know, this really crude type of tobacco leaf rolled up as biddies. It's very, it's really dangerous. They're already doing that. If you ban uh, a safer alternative, even if it was only fifty percent safer, you're condemning a huge swath of the population to continuing to continually dying from something when you can when you could take a different action. Uh, it's 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 really offensive that, you know, when we talk about legislation or public health policy in the US, there's a big push towards equity, towards um not disenfranchising certain minority groups the groups that have been marginalized, bringing them in, finding out what their values are, what works for them, what approaches would be best to improve, to give them the options to improve their own health. And then we have groups like these Bloomberg funded groups now going to LMICs, uh, low and middle income countries, and saying, you know, we don't really care what your local traditions are, what your values are, what your needs are, what this will do, what the black market is like, we don't care. This is what we're suggesting all over the world. So you do it now too, and we'll give you the money to do it if you do it as well.
0: Now, when you mentioned uh, India, do we know about any direct connection between Bloomberg and India?
1: Oh yeah, the Bloomberg Initiative has has definitely given not just the health ministry, but other uh, other aspects of the health establishment, which can include universities. They've given them grants throughout the years. Same with Vietnam. If you look at all of the, especially in in Asia and Southeast Asia, if you and if you look at If you just go on to the Bloomberg Initiative's website, they will show you who they gave money to. They don't always tell you how much. And then you can go and look, and I've done this, go look at that country's health ministry or or the legislature and see what were they doing on tobacco at the time. And most of the time you will see pretty direct coincidental actions being taken by, by the government in the same year that they get grants.
0: So a lot of people have commented over the last couple of years that it does seem like that there's an international cabal that's organized in, in an effort to stamp out vaping. It sounds like that that's indeed not conspiracy theory. It's true. And it's even right there for you to see on the players' websites.
1: Yeah. And it's, again, it's more insidious than an actual conspiracy theory because in a conspiracy, you know, the classic conspiracy theory, you have a bunch of guys around a table. They're, they're constantly coordinating and talking. And you have some of that here with this giant vast web of groups and individuals and universities and other organizations but they're all so aligned that a lot of the times they don't actually need to coordinate or they can coordinate with their own little pod you know in their country or in their area of the world without necessarily having to run back to you know daddy warbucks bloomberg and ask should we do xy or z so it's it's much harder to actually see it for what it is which is a movement or you know a an intent, an intentional conspiracy. I don't want to, like I said, I've said this before on your show, I don't think it's a conspiracy because they're not hiding it. It's, it's really all up front, it's a movement. It's an ideological movement on on tobacco issues that that is shared by an increasingly large number of important organizations.
0: Now, I mean, everybody understands uh, the concept of corruption when it comes to say big business and its influence on government and pretty much most populations agree that that's not an advantageous thing. I mean, that's the whole premise behind the battle that tobacco control is having with big tobacco is that the influence of big tobacco on policy making is not only unjust, it's evil and it needs to be gotten rid of. So why is it then okay for private organizations like Bloomberg's, you know, initiatives and so forth to go out there and 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 provide money to governments and in you know and try to have the same kind of influence on policy.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say it's not okay. I do, I don't I actually don't like the idea of of any private organization giving money to government to, to a government institution because they all have an agenda. They wouldn't exist if they didn't have some agenda, and there's no way that that agenda isn't influencing. Policies that should be made based on science and based on the needs and desires of the population. Uh, It is it is functionally okay because people have ceded the moral high ground to these groups. They've said tobacco is not only a dangerous behavior, smoking is not only a dangerous behavior or personal choice. It is immoral. Therefore, any group fighting it is moral because it's so you know big tobacco is so evil and smoking is such a great uh, you know blight on humanity that. If someone is trying to fight that, they are instantly considered to be the good guy. Like I said, we love our black and white, good and evil narratives. And that's it. And tobacco can't give money to groups, even you know, uh, indirectly. They can't give money because of the FTCT, because of these international treaties that are trying to keep big tobacco out of government. So when I'm watching these hearings in in countries like uh, the Philippines, and they're they're struggling with this question of why is it okay for these groups that have you know they have an agenda to give money when it's not okay for tobacco companies and I, I try and think about it this way you said let's say you had a Christian health group who's who was interested in maternal and child care and they were giving money to the government or to government health programs and they were fully in they were fully anti-abortion right anti-birth uh, control and then you have a government that's sort of falling in line with those programs. Everyone should see why that is a problem, even though they're not a business. You know, they're not a tobacco business. And P.S. This actually happened already with American fund with American grants to African countries when we had a conservative president at the time, a president at the time who was anti-abortion. They cut off funding to African countries' health programs, maternal health programs, um, because they were promoting birth control and abortion and so some of those countries actually changed their policies and started banning or not recommending certain procedures or behaviors for women in that country so it did influence policy
0: well and that's the whole point i don't think that you can find free money that doesn't come with strings attached
1: no there is no such thing as a free lunch
0: (laughs) (laughs) well you know it seems to be quite demeaning uh their treatment towards these low and middle income countries it's almost paternalism would be one um you know colonialism i think is a just it's got so many connotations to it that people don't quite understand it i mean it certainly is you know colonizing uh their government policy making but it's definitely very paternalist
1: yes uh, and i specifically use that word colonialism with the hopes that more people would begin investigating because it's not well known even among people in the medical field or in public health about their own colonial origins. As I mentioned, you know, when you had armies marching into these countries uh, and they were colonizing these populations and the reason that public health got involved in those areas in, was in part to make sure that the soldiers were healthy enough to fight and that the the population of laborers Was healthy and productive for their colonizers, and a lot of the you know this Western medicine tradition that came out of colonialism, it is the framework of it is to ignore folkways, you know, which are just traditional forms of medicine, healing, therapy, that sort of thing. To look down on the people to say we know, you know, with our Western logical medicine, which is clearly superior to everything you're doing. We know what's best for you, and the only reason you wouldn't do it is because you're ignorant uh, or evil. And we still have that now. We still see that you know it's either you're a child or you're a devil. And we're seeing that in in the U.S. with with smoking and with vaping, where you have oh well, you're addicted, so we don't have to listen to you because you're an addict. You know you were your body was. Taken over by big tobacco and nicotine, so you don't you don't count, or you're just a child who's also a victim, who's a target of big tobacco. Um, all of this still, and I think it's really important for public health professionals to first recognize it and then start to start to tease it out that their ingrained framework comes from colonialism. There's still there's still a legacy of that discriminatory perspective where you look at a group of people and you say, "We are here to help." We know what's best. Therefore, we don't need your permission or input.
0: Now, decolonization is all the rage right now when it comes to race issues for certain in the U.S. And a lot of the people that seem to advocate that position are from the more progressive side, you would say would probably fall in the public health and Bloomberg camps. So it's a huge irony that, you know, at home they advocate one thing and then they're out there practicing another.
1: I mean, if you understand and I mean, I know you know this history, but if you understand the history of progressivism in America, it actually isn't shocking at all And that public health in America, you know, in addition to the colonialistic origins of public health had, you know, it was progressive and it had a very, you know, eugenics was part of it. It had a very paternalistic streak. Uh, most of the most of the initiatives were functionally about protecting white middle class men and women uh, and, and dealing with, you know, I'm writing something actually at the moment about uh, opium smoking when you had Chinese immigrants. First of all, opium was everywhere in America in, in the 19th century. And the only real numbers on addiction seemed to concentrate addiction to opium in white middle and upper class women. They were drinking it through. To, there's, there's, there's laudanum and tinctures and all of that, and you could get it. Your grocer could give it to you. Make up his own formula if you wanted. But when Chinese immigrants started coming in, and their tradition was to smoke opium, opium smoking got linked with Chinese. It got linked with Chinatown. It got linked with squalor and crime. Even though most Chinese immigrants actually didn't smoke opium. And then when news stories started to uh, Trump up the idea that young women were going into these opium dens and then being forced into prostitution and our young men are listless and they're not ambitious anymore. They don't want to, you know, they're no longer upward, upwardly mobile. Then American states started to ban opium smoking, not opium, just the smoking of it and smoke and opium smoking dens. Federal government did it as well. And, it's, you know, the letter of the law itself. For all appearances, physicians were interested in the health of the population, but what they were actually interested in was in the physical, moral, and economic welfare of the white middle class. And you still see that today. Even the reason that we're trying to now, or the reason that uh, it's very popular to support cannabis legalization, which I also support, they're going to talk, they're going to tell you that they're concerned about disparities in criminal justice, which is true that exists. But the real reason is because white kids in California. Started to get arrested for, for holding cannabis, you know, during the Reagan era. That's when white parents started to form parents organizations to decriminalize cannabis, and that's when it started to get attention in America. Our public health campaigns, our drug campaigns, are still fully gatekept by the white middle and upper class, and that's why you see someone like Bloomberg, the upper upperest class there is, going into low and middle income countries and telling them what they should care about when people are some a lot of them are still starving. They don't have adequate housing Uh, and you're saying, well, you shouldn't be vaping or you shouldn't be, you know, you shouldn't be smoking, but you definitely shouldn't be vaping. It's 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 lunacy and it, it is offensive.
0: Now, it seems that what's happening here is that consumers are being shut out out of all conversations wherever Bloomberg and his team are going.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, uh, when it comes to substance use of any type or any behavior that falls into the morality category, it's always been that way because, as I mentioned, you're an addict or there's something morally wrong with you. We don't have to listen to you. But yes, in these countries, consumers, including America, consumers are completely shut out from the conversation. Uh, It's very difficult. You know, if you have a lawmaker who has already staked a claim against vaping or some form of tobacco or whatever, it's, it's almost impossible as just a normal consumer to get that lawmaker's ear and change their mind. They're not listening to you, they're listening to experts at WHO, whatever, WHO, the union, campaign for tobacco for kids, whichever one sounds best. Because honestly, the number of people who care about any issue, no matter what it is, is fairly small. And lawmakers are really concerned about how everyone else perceives them. They don't really care they know that you know that their position has nothing to do with reality science or caring about individuals, but everyone else doesn't know that.
0: Do you think some progress is being made in terms of the scandal erupting around Bloomberg and these and this money going to governments? I would imagine there's some policymakers out there, some uh, politicians that are having uh, a close look at their documents that they are passing or they got in the regulatory process to make sure they're scrubbing out, you know, the union or Bloomberg philanthropies or the Bloomberg initiative and so forth from documents. I say, if you find yourself looking to scrub that out, you probably have done something wrong.
1: Yeah. I mean, I hate to say that it's gratifying to see what's happening, but after so long of, you know, people knowing that this was going on, that I I hate to see that it is going on in these countries, but that that lawmakers, you know, if you watch the hearings in in the Philippines, there are so many lawmakers across different political parties who are genuinely worried, concerned, and willing to do something about what they see as undue influence on their political processes. And we're starting to see that in other countries. Uh, It was India first, and the Philippines and Mexico. Uh, I'm hoping we'll see some in African countries, some other Asian countries. It'd be very nice. South America, and and honestly, non-low uh, and middle income countries should be looking at the same thing because it's going on here too. Yes, they're focused on, and it's it's much more obvious because they're actually having bigger successes in low and middle income countries. But without a doubt. Uh, Bloomberg and all of the associated groups are trying to do the exact same thing in American cities, states, and at the federal government. So the hope, you know, the little silver lining is that as more of these countries start to investigate this and to push back on it, we'll see more of that throughout the world.
0: The fact of the matter is, is that the concept of self-determination, the right to a people to self-determine and create their own nation, is actually a progressive uh, philosophy. I mean President Woodrow Wilson, that's what he advocated after World War one as the major change to the way we organize ourselves globally is uh, for people to self-determine. And so you have you know these countries that essentially are trying to govern themselves, which is exactly what it's supposed to be, under the old progressive ideal. And yet progressivism seems to be coming in there and, and its paternalistic side, is kind of quashing that sovereignty that these countries have
1: and i don't think this is um this this is not necessarily um unique to to the progressive movement to progressives but this idea that well we want you to have all the freedom in the world unless you do something we don't like like up to and until that whatever whatever the thing is whichever side you're on or you know piccadillo you have you know it's all good until you start spending your money in a weird way or it's all good until you start smoking then we have to come in and tell you what to do because clearly you can't do it yourselves, and that's you know this is what the union uh, issued a report back in I think May 2020, maybe a little later, where they said low and middle income countries need to ban e-cigarettes and heated tobacco products because, and then a long list of reasons, and some of those reasons were well, it's going to be a big regulatory burden to regulate these products, and and low and middle income countries don't have the resources or expertise to do this. So functionally, what they're saying, and again, offensive to the max is we don't think you can do this therefore you should just ban it even though the idea that well you can't regulate it but certainly you can ban it i mean that's easier right it's so much easier just try and deal with a giant black market uh and how are they going to deal with that black market in low and middle income countries do they think that's going to be great for people's health when you have cops bursting down doors uh so yeah a progressive
0: it is not right and i mean we don't want to beat up on the progressive philosophy i mean that's a lot of good has happened under the progressive philosophy i think it's just we want to hold them to their feet to the fire to stick to one particular way of going about things and i think we're all better off when that's the case i mean if harm reduction is really the right idea for opiates and heroin and so forth then it should be okay for tobacco uh too as well so i think that's really where we have to kind of hold their feet to the fire
1: yeah, and I think uh, some members—I'm I'm not going to say progressive—you know—some people who fall on the left side of the American political spectrum <clears throat> do at least recognize the problems, the lack of consistency. You know, people close to Biden mentioned, you know, because he was being pressured. Why aren't you supporting cannabis legalization? You should come out and support cannabis legalization. And he was saying, well, I don't know if the science is that you know. I don't think this is helpful. Or I don't know all the science, and I'm a little bit worried because you're all coming out against vaping, uh, because you you keep saying we should ban it or restrict it because the science isn't good enough. What about cannabis? So at least, you know, people around Biden, Biden himself, maybe they recognize the hypocrisy. They, of course, haven't actually done anything about it yet, even if they recognize it. But I agree with you. Don't want to beat up on progressives. Uh, I fall left of the political spectrum myself. And I think public health, even with its colonial origins and, and continued legacy, has done a lot of really good things, polio, you know, uh, living standards, clean water, uh, malaria, all of this stuff, great. But there needs to be consistency, and I think it's really important, not just to beat up on them, but to, to do the self-check of, hey, is this problematic what we're doing? You know, we're saying we care about equity and justice, and now we're going into other countries or other communities, even in the U.S., and saying, you're the target, you're a victim, or you're evil, and we're going to make you do the right thing because you clearly can't do it yourself. That shouldn't be problematic.
0: Yeah, not just problematic. I, I, think it's, uh, I think it's got a lot of potential disaster going on because so many people smoke in these countries. You know, We're talking here more globally than traditionally as we do with just North America. So the, the amount of smoking in, say, India or the Philippines, I mean, it's off the charts, and if something doesn't happen, I mean, if you're going to really make an effort to put a dent into the one billion lives that are going to be lost in the, these hundred years, you have to do it in these countries.
1: Yeah, and that's again, uh, not to a The point of, of you know, some of the origins of, of public health, where it was, we care, you know, we're going to get you this vaccine whether you want it or not. Like we're going to quarantine if you. We have really strong arm tactics there. We are going to force you to get uh, to get vaccinated, and people would say why do you care if I die from you know malaria or whatever, tuberculosis, when I'm going to die tomorrow from starvation? Like, give me a sandwich, then give me the, you know, and we have that clearly happening here, where groups are so focused on tobacco and vaping, and now they're really hyper folk, fixated on the vaping issue, that they don't seem to care if people die from other causes, so long as while you die, you're not smoking. And you look in these other countries, and If there is an appropriate way, if these groups truly cared about improving lives and health without infringing on people's, you know, sovereignty uh, and agency, they would give money and help these, you know, these countries build their own infrastructure, their own expertise, their own communication with their population so that they could decide the policies and the approach that is Best for their populations. That's not what these groups want. These groups want to check on a uh, check on the board. This country banned it. That country banned it. See, we're doing, you know, look, mom, we're doing well. Uh, and that's yes, it's it's not good for health because you have people who have stresses, and people with stresses tend to look for ways to alleviate that stress. Small pleasures like smoking. A lot, if you read studies where you're talking to people or you read accounts, a lot of the people in Certain areas of low and middle income countries, they have a mindset of, well, I'm not going to live to the 80 anyway. I'm gonna die from something else because my living conditions are poor, I don't have a job, whatever it is. So I may as well enjoy the time I have. So I'm going to smoke. And you're not gonna stop that person with a ban on vaping or even a ban on cigarettes. It's never worked. They will find something else. They will go down the line, unfortunately to something even more dangerous. So if you care about people, You want to give people the options and the information so that they can make the choices that are best for their lives which doesn't necessarily mean living to 100 that's not everyone's best life and i think that's a real problem in the public health uh, advocacy space anyway is that we measure success or they measure success based on how long are you going to live which diseases did you get and that's that's not the value pyramid for everybody